Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I want to pay my respects to country and to all the elders, past and present, who've been part of the struggle for so long now for sovereignty and self-determination. This week on Earth Matters, we'll hear from some members of the Indigenous Environment Network and they're speaking at the Soil Not Oil Coalition's 2020 International Conference in August this year on Indigenous traditional farming, loss of biodiversity and disease and the changing paradigms away from a fossil fuel economy. So I'm stepping in as Tom Goldtooth. I'm the director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. So the title for this session is Indigenous Traditional Farming, also the loss of uh, biodiversity and disease, our life, our plants, our, our, our medicines, our trees, even contamination, the weakening of our ecosystems. Most of our Indigenous peoples that I've met from the north to the global south all have similar beliefs and understanding our relationship to the sacredness of our Mother Earth. In the North, we have often said that the the creator, the the maker of the universe, that sacred being, that great uh, energy that we have, the, the great mystery, has entrusted us in a sacred responsibility to protect and care for the land and all of life, as well as to safeguard for the future uh, generations. And that's not just for us as indigenous people, but that's for humanity. And we believe a lot in the prophecies here in the north and what we call Turtle Island. Our brothers and sisters of the Six Nations, the Haudenosaunee, they use that, that term and along with a lot of the Algonquin is the Turtle Island concept of North America. So a lot of the prophecies uh, of many of our different tribal peoples, they tell of a time when when our people will rise up, like coming out of a haze, a dark mist, and that we're going to be waking up into the light of understanding on who we really are as Indigenous peoples, taking back our languages, taking back spiritual teachings that through the process of colonization has uh, systematically removed us from that identification as part of that process. I'm going to um, go back to Ed Mendoza and that relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth, those kind of things that are part of the teachings and traditions that have been passed on to many uh, of our indigenous peoples and how we relate to the land. I could just tell some stories uh, about the, the farming thing. As a, as a little boy, my all my family, they all grew uh, food. And, and a lot of people did all that stuff in the backyard. They grew corn, beans, and squash. Some time ago, people were just doing all those things. But somehow people got in the fast lane and started with uh, easier and uh, cheaper to go and buy their food at the grocery store. But as they're all finding out that that food is a lot of times it's contaminated, it's got pesticides, and people now because of the uh, virus things going on, it's just uh, you know it's kind of amazing to me that they're just barely starting to figure out that this is not the way to go. And I worked with a couple elders in the the neighboring uh, reservation, 
Eleanor Pasquale, the late Eleanor Pasquale and uh, Willard Johnson, they would tell me stories about when the, the, the different tribes would get to, you know, the tribes would get together and they'd work together to make a wheat harvest. So what was happening with traditional farming is that there was a whole community of, of different uh, village peoples getting together to help with the harvest. And then there was a trade going on. So they would trade foods from the desert to the to the people on this side that were growing foods near the river that had irrigation. And it was the irrigation was a simple process of diverting, not damming up the river, but they kind of diverted it and pushed that water through the fields. And it was very fertile lands. But now with uh, modern day agriculture, they got uh, leveling and they're doing all kinds of different stuff. And people are not farming the same way. And of course, they're using tractors and, and all the problems that come with that. But it's about the understanding that seeds, collecting those seeds, and then the women, how they fix these foods. This is one thing they told me a long time ago, was us farmers can grow all that stuff, but if we don't uh, take care of the seeds and we don't have uh, the women that have the know-how of how to fix this foods, how to dry it and how to preserve it, then we, we've got a broken system. But I find that now, you know, after all these years, people are starting to learn how to collect foods out of the desert and how to grow some of the, the original beans, how to grow the squash, and how to preserve them. So it, what we're doing is this, you know, some innovation of, uh, of aquaponic systems where we, we actually grow stuff. And then again, it's not all that innovative because down in Mexico, they always were growing uh, food on top of the water, and then the fish were in there, you know, fertilizing that water. So we're always just trying to understand the old ways and then kind of, use uh, a few modern things to uh, to implement, you know, different uh, processes that is the best we can do that's similar to what our ancestors did. Because here on this land where I live, in, I live in Salt River Indian Reservation, there are some canals, there are some ditches, and you can get some water, but there's not as many places that you can go pick up wild plants, because that is a big part of our diet was going out to the desert and picking up the wild herbs and all the berries and the saguaros and all these things. Some of those foods, like the mesquite tree beans, uh, they, we, we all did those things, but when, when you didn't have a good uh, rain, which happened out here every so often, you might have a drought, but they always had mesquite beans. So that was our survival food was uh, the mesquite beans and the pods, because even in a, in a droughty season, the trees would always provide for us. So. Uh, I'm not here, sitting here going to hit and glorify the old days. They, those were very hard days, and especially during times of drought. And and there was disease, and there were other different issues that people had. But uh, thanks to our ancestors, we survived. We're here, and now it's our it's our duty to understand traditional agriculture. But not, at the same time, we have to be innovative. Just as our ancestors were, were innovative, we have to look at better techniques for uh, preserving the water and making water last longer, mulch in our fields, composting them, using animal manures, and ro crop rotations. And one of the things that we do around here, throughout my, the orchard that I have here, I have mesquite trees growing, and modern-day farmers would say that that's not going to be good because you're gonna, they're gonna, too many trees are going to fight with each other. But there's a uh, a relationship between the native trees and the fruit trees that we plant, which again, some of those fruit trees are not native. But the point is, is that they uh, work together like a, as a forestry. So, you know, that's kind of what people are trying to do now. It's, 
you know, what I'm doing at my little farm here is to create basically how a forest would be, where you can go out and, and everything, the water what's going to be, the moisture in the soil is going to be better because you have all these trees growing around here. But years ago, they dammed up these uh, river and there was no water here. And then, they, and then the modern farmers, everybody's pumping water out of the ground to, and the water table wasn't there. So you, it's kind of hard to duplicate the natural conditions on this land here that was here a hundred years ago. And throughout all my travels, everywhere I go, all the little small farmers are always having a difficulty because the bigger farmers are pulling all the water and pumping it and doing big massive agriculture and messing up the water tables. But we're still, the people are, are gathering and, and uh, when we're organized and we know what the issues are and we work together, I think the, the people can be a force as long as we're always working together. But the powers that be that, you know, that, are con- that own the oil and the powers that be that are making decisions and powers that have the money to, to uh, our big corporate agriculture, we've got an uphill battle. But at least on, the, on a small scale, we could still, you know, on the, the most revolutionary thing that we could do is grow our own food. If there's a disease and problems in the inner cities, that there was throughout the history of mankind, it's because we, we weren't really taking care of our little farms. We've got to keep doing our little struggles on our farm and continue, and little by little we're going to overcome this predicament that we find ourselves in the so-called uh, civilized world, that they call it. So we're going to make a transition here, and thank you to our traditional farmer, Ed Mendoza, calling in from uh, southern Arizona. We're witnessing a loss of biodiversity. The Mother Earth uh, is in a situation where nature is being affected. Even nature is being sold and commodified. Is this uh, loss of biodiversity, how does that creating a situation where we're at risk on diseases? So I'm going to turn it over to Linda Black Elk. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Linda Black Elk. Um, I'm coming to you right now, actually, from the traditional lands of the Ocheti Shakoi, the Lakota and Dakota people. I'm an ethnobotanist, and I teach about the ways that people use plants for food and medicine and materials. But I don't just teach. I actually make medicine for people. And um, something that I have noticed over the 25 years now (laughs) that I've been teaching is even in the Dakotas, North and South Dakota, where um, on the prairies you can see the impact of really poor farming and ranching practices, but you can also see the really severe impact. Just in the 25 years that I've been teaching, I can see how plants have been affected by climate change and by poor grazing and farming practices. So, for example, there are really important food and medicine plants. One particular one that comes to my mind is a very important food source for the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota people. In their language, it's called tinsina or tinsila, and um, it's pediomelum esculentum, if you're interested in scientific names. And this tuber, I used to see it growing in a really wide range all across the prairies, of the Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Reservations. And I've gone out with my students over the past few years, and we've noticed that some of those um, areas where that plant used to be very plentiful 20 years ago have diminished by more than half. 
in some places. And that's, that's a really incredibly important food source. And that's just one example. I have you know, scores of other examples. So what happens when we lose those traditional foods? What happens when we lose traditional medicines? If they no longer have those traditional foods, then they have to turn to foods that are easier to get, which often ends up being processed foods, things from a can, a box, or a bag. And we know that those foods, those processed foods, put us as Indigenous people into very high-risk categories. So, for example, they increase rates of heart disease, diabetes, asthma, and those you know, high-risk factors then make us more susceptible to novel viruses, for example. It's just this really damaging chain reaction that goes from a loss of biodiversity to a loss of traditional foods to an increase in non-traditional foods and processed foods, which then, of course, leads to disease. And the fact is, a lot of people are trying to fight those diseases with prescription medications. With a loss of biodiversity, people are turning less and less to gentle traditional medicines, things that are gentle on our systems that allow us to heal slowly and gently over time. And without having access to those traditional medicines and then turning to prescription medications, we're actually seeing a lot of damage done. It's just a cascade that starts with the loss of biodiversity and ends up with our people, with indigenous people dying from diseases and from um, an overuse of prescription medication. We have to really address issues of climate change, but we also have to address issues of soil depletion I actually have a lot of friends who are trying to cultivate traditional medicines, but in that cultivation process, they're finding that the medicines do not have the strength that they have when they're growing in their native traditional soil, right? Um, because uh, the, the, the soil that's used in cultivation does not have all of those beautiful soil microbes, the mycorrhizae and, you know, the little um, nematodes and things like that that our prairie plants need in order to make the high levels of medicine that they normally have. The impact of a loss of biodiversity and the impact on, on a loss of soil microbe biodiversity has been super damaging to indigenous people. Try to picture that cascade in your minds. Try to picture the fact that we start with a loss of biodiversity and a loss of soil quality, and it ends up with a decreased quality of life due to disease. And, you know, in the middle there is a, a loss of our traditional plant foods and medicines. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. For our next speaker, uh, for our Indigenous Environmental Network, we have a Keep It In The Ground campaign. And Dallas Goldtooth is the campaigner for that, for us to create this uh, dream of a new paradigm to move away from fossil fuel economy. And what, how are we going to do that? We use the word just transition in many parts of the world in this country to do that, to create a transformation away to a clean economy. Before the coronavirus even hit, before it even became a pandemic, the oil industry was already seeing 
some threats to its futures with uh, um, oil price wars that was happening between Saudi Arabia and Russia and the U.S. And so there was already a strain on the oil market going into the coronavirus. And we're seeing that strain continue. And we're seeing it to a degree that some corporations are predicting a drop in oil production of 40% within the next 10 years. With the expected drop of oil production, these corporations uh, like uh, British Petroleum and Shell, what they really are pushing now is this language around net zero emissions and saying, look, we're going to do our job. We're going to do our part to protect the earth and we're going to be rolling back production. We're going to, our goal is to reach net zero emissions, but it's all a ploy really to promote uh, various forms of carbon trading and carbon pricing, a way to keep the status quo by just using different language and different mechanisms to make sure that they can still get their profits. And so we are diligently following these actions by, you know, by corporations, by green capitalists, by those who are saying like, look, all we need to do to get through this coronavirus, all we need to do to continue the proliferation of capitalism is just tweak the language a little bit to maintain the status quo. And we as indigenous peoples, we understand that the status quo of capitalism is killing the planet. The status quo of capitalism is killing billions of people on this planet and putting the future of all life at tremendous risk. And we have to change the system. And so our Keep It in the Ground campaign with the Indigenous Environmental Network is focused on supporting frontline Indigenous communities who are fighting fossil fuel extraction, whether it's at the source, whether it's at the, along the transit routes of pipelines and rail cars, or whether it's at the point of, of refinement or export. And the fight is ongoing during this entire pandemic. And that is a unique challenge for us right now. How do we fight extractive development when we're locked in, when we're in quarantine, when we can't gather like we used to gather? Right now, what we are experiencing, this type of organizing, this type of work, this is something new for each and every one of us. And so it is critical not to diminish the power of our ability to organize in this time. I wanted to share just a few thoughts about this conversation around fossil fuels and just transition. You know, I work with frontline communities. I work with individuals who have family members who work in the oil industry. You know, working with native communities who local economies actually depend on oil and gas to keep them going because that's the way the system is structured. We're talking about folks on the north slope of Alaska. We're talking about folks in the Bakken oil fields of, North, uh, of western North Dakota. Um, we're talking about folks in the tar sands region of northern Alberta, you know, folks in Oklahoma. These are areas where the way they've been structured is that they depend on the income of oil and gas. And so the hard conversation that we are having is how do we support those communities to remove themselves from that economy but at the same time, be able to put food on the table. At the same time, be able to, to uh, provide warmth for their families in the cold winters. The reality is, is that we're dealing, we're talking with folks whose entire futures are up in the air. 
And the best we can do, all what we can do is continue to push for an overall systemic shift towards renewable, sustainable energy. We as a climate justice movement, a social justice movement, are going to continue to demand equity within our society. We are going to continue to demand justice for those on the front lines, the front lines of environmental injustice, the front lines of healthcare issues, the front lines of police violence, the front lines of food justice for something better. So that's the overlay. Oil and gas is on the ropes. They're backing up. They're seeing that their future is severely threatened at this moment. And so we have to continue to do is continue to push them, continue to advocate for the divestment of fossil fuels, continue to challenge the expansion of fossil fuel projects, and continue to develop other ways of living where we're not dependent on fossil fuels. Thank you. One of the questions that came in from the audience is, how do you get the youth involved? Linda, if you want to respond to that, how do we get the youth involved? The thing is, is getting youth involved is is not hard. <laughs> it's getting them involved in the right things. What I have found is that you have got to make sure they are able to do something hands-on. If you're going to ask them to care about, you know, soil depletion, then then get them digging in the soil. Get them planting things. Teach them about regenerative agriculture. Teach them how to regenerate the soil and then get them actually doing that. If you want them to care about, you know, plants, then get, take them outside and teach them about plants. That is really the most important thing is actually getting them outside. I've worked a lot with middle schoolers. So kids who are age, you know, maybe 12 and they want to pretend that they don't care. Um, but once I get them outside, once I get them harvesting uh, plants and telling them, hey, we're going to prepare these and eat these later, they get very passionate about how to identify plants and how to identify food and how to identify medicine and how to utilize it. So um, get them involved and actually help them get their hands in the soil. Mm, thank you. Another question. I think uh, this be a good one for you, Ed is as a traditional farmer, how do you work with soil that has been contaminated? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, in, the, in the little uh, locality that I'm in now growing, it used to be uh, cotton fields and there was a, a lot of issues with that. I believe that a lot of people were getting cancer in different uh, problems with that. And we're all witnessing all the young peoples and peoples on this earth that are having health issues and a lot of it I believe is related but to this but the, the way to go about this is planting trees keep planting and composting and through that reforestation process and, and rebuilding the natural order of the land in time you know you wouldn't think so but in time a lot of those pesticides r residues break down it just takes some time to do that but but planting the trees and composting and you know, we're going to initially have some stuff that, you know, has issues, but it's, it's, it's not an overnight thing. But, you know, it, it can be done. But, but composting, is, it, it really it does a good thing. It'll break down a lot of those uh, 
those harsh chemicals and, and make it so that we can have the land clean again. So it's just something that I have to work on and, and over time. And, and obviously we've got to stop having that, that's those same helicopters flying over the land and the same uh, process for all, uh, this whole reservation. At one time there was just helicopters, pesticides all over the place, but there's not so much anymore. So we've just got to take advantage of that and stop the pesticides. And then, like I said, little by little, we're going to, the land starts to take care of itself and get cleaned up. Another question uh, for Dallas, what does the audience need to do to support a transition away from a fossil fuel economy? There's a lot of different ways that individuals can participate in this uh, you know, transition away from fossil fuels. I say that, but I want, to, I want to encourage people to not see themselves as individuals and not see it as an individual fight. Because individualism is, as, is actually a primary way for capitalism to maintain its status quo. We have to start thinking from a collective mindset, what do we do, have to do as a society? What do we have to do as a collective to create institutional change, systemic change for the better? And you know, divestment right now is a huge aspect of that fight. So one, as an individual, we can divest ourselves. World's biggest banks all invest in fossil fuels. So divesting your money out of those banks goes a long way. If you work for a public institution, they all invest their money, the public's money somewhere. So you can have need to have a conversation about where are they invest in their money. And if it's in fossil fuels, divest that from fossil fuels. Putting pressure on insurance companies to divest themselves from um, fossil fuels. You know, so there's a lot of different ways, but we have to really see how are we doing systemically? How are we actually responding collectively to uh, transition away from fossil fuels? You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. This week on the show, we heard from members of the Indigenous Environment Network speaking at the Soil Not Oil Coalition's 2020 International Conference. This presentation was moderated by Danette and Dakota Director of the Indigenous Environment Network, Tom Goldtooth. And guests included Dahakataba ethnobotanist and food sovereignty activist, Linda Blackalk, and Chicano Nawakt Indigenous farmer and permaculturalist and activist, Ed Mendoza, and also Dallas Goldtooth, who is a Metawakatan, Dakota and Diné campaign organiser for the Indigenous Environmental Network. And you can check out the Indigenous Environmental Network at ienearth.org. And you can find our Earth Matters podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced with the support of 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. That's all for this week, so tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. The Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support. 
On Monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Jaburung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. One, come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. Two, ring Daniel Andrews on 96515000 and let him know what you think. Three, educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. Four, donate to the embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. Bombs is a protest against like all the food waste. We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste, make meals from that food, and serves them up to people who need a feed. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. We need to have a working vehicle. So we do need money to keep our van going. Very occasionally we have to buy some food. To donate to our current fundraiser, go to www.chaft.org forward slash project forward slash Food Not Bombs pandemic support. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food Not Bombs You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.